Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Ray tēnei. Nō mai whakarongo mai koe ki te hipipango. Hi there, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. On Saturday, March 11th, 2023, at the end of Pride Week, I jumped in my car and drove a few hours north from Wellington up to Whanganui. I'd meant to arrive in time for the Pride Parade that morning, but unfortunately I forgot to charge my recording gear the night before, so by the time I was there, the parade had finished. But the drumming circle was still going strong. I was looking around for Christina Emery, chair of Pride Whanganui. Oh, hey. Hi, are you Christina? Christina. Hi, I'm yes. William. Nice Hi. to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. You've got fantastic oh weather God. today. Stunning. It's amazing. We've got like the best little rain shower to cool everybody down halfway through. <laughs> it was amazing. I'm so annoyed because this thing, it turned out it was out of... Um... At this point, the drum circle drowned out my whinging, so we walked down the street to have a chat about the event, which has brought me to Whanganui. The Mackie tours um, happening this afternoon are just going to be absolutely incredible. Of course, Charles Mackie, the, the walks this afternoon are to um, honour his legacy. I think it's really important um, for everybody to remember where we've come from. Charles Mackie is the man who brought me to Whanganui. And the tour is at his old office, 27 Ridgeway Street. OK, here's Ridgeway Street, I'm just on the corner of the courthouse. Walking down Ridgeway, you can tell this is an old part of town. Lots of big Edwardian brick buildings. There's a sign in front of the place I'm looking for. Okay, Meteor Office Products Depot, um, which is, I believe, what it's called now. Let's go see who's here. Hello? I think we're over here. Oh! I don't know if you could hear that, but there were a few people on the other side of the road who yelled at me that the tour hadn't started yet, and I should come hang out with them in the shade of a few big trees. While I was standing there, chatting, waiting for the tour, I imagine what it would have been like to be sitting in this spot 103 years earlier, on Saturday, May 15th, 1920. Back in those days, Ridgeway Street was the main thoroughfare for Whanganui, and the town itself was a very busy place. There aren't many motor cars, but bikes whiz up and down the road and electric trams rattle their way from Castle Cliff to Aramoho and back. Three men are walking along the footpath. An engineer named Colin Cameron, his father, George Cameron, and a labourer, Sidney Sykes. There's a bang. A bit muffled, but maybe enough to make them look up in surprise. A few seconds later... A wooden chair flies through the top story window. A young man appears in the window, framed by shards of glass. Ah! 
Help! They've been shot! Suddenly, an older man appears behind him. He grabs the young man and pulls him out of view. There's yelling, sounds of a struggle, then... The men dash forward, yank open the door, run up the stairs. A door at the top of the stairs bursts open and the young man they'd seen in the window staggers out. His eyes are wild. There's blood coming from a wound in his chest. A revolver is in his hand. Mr Mackey has shot me. Get a car and take me to a doctor. As he's speaking, a man in his 40s with a receding hairline and a bushy moustache rushes through the door behind the wounded man. I accidentally shot him while I was demonstrating an automatic revolver. The young man's eyes flutter. He stumbles. The bystanders grab him. They help him down to the street and lay him on the footpath. Mr Mackey hovers anxiously nearby. George Cameron whips out a notebook. He takes down the young man's name. My name is Walter Darcy Creswell. I am dying. I feel I am going. Give my love to my mother. Sidney Sykes, the labourer, speaks up. If you think you're dying, you'd better tell us all you know. I discovered a scandal and Mr Mackey shot me. I accidentally shot him while showing him the revolver. It was not an accident. I was shot. With that, Crespel's eyes roll back into his head. He slumps, still breathing but unconscious. The three bystanders look down at the young man, then at each other, then at the accused shooter, Mr Mackey. They must have known who he was the moment they saw him. He was easily the most famous person in town. Charles Mackey, Mayor of Whanganui. By this point, you've probably put two and two together and understood why this tour of Mackey's old office is happening on Pride Week. The scandal Darcy Cresswell uncovered before he was shot was that Mayor Mackey was having sex with other men. After a few minutes, our tour groups waved over the street. We start wandering up the old creaky stairs and into the office where this drama got started. This is Lisa Rewiti, by the way. She's an educator for the Whanganui Regional Museum and a master storyteller. So we're here today to talk about our probably most famous mayor. Our mayor was mayor in Whanganui up until 1920, and um, he'd actually been mayor on and off for about 12 years. So he had he'd been re-elected about... I'm going to fade down Lisa here, because as awesome as a storyteller as she was, this is my podcast, and I'm not going to have her spoiling all the juicy details too early on. The story of Charles Mackey is fascinating. There are so many mysteries to dig into. Like... How did Cresswell discover the scandalous fact about Mackey? Was he acting alone, or was this some wider scheme? And there's the broader question his story throws up. What was it like to be someone like Mackey, a queer man living in 1920s New Zealand? How did New Zealanders respond to the outing of such a famous person? And how do we think about the story today? And why was Charles Mackey systematically erased 
from the history of Whanganui. They took all knowledge of him away. So they scratched out his name, they took away photographs, they um, tried to wipe him. I think this is a great opportunity to bring some of those stories back again. Over the last decade or so, Charles Mackey's story has come back into the spotlight. And the most penetrating glare has come from historian and author Paul Diamond, curator Māori at the Alexander Turnbull Library. Paul has spent years investigating the former mayor of Whanganui and recently published a book on his story, Downfall, The Destruction of Charles Mackey. Twelve years is a long time to spend researching any sort of single event or person. Um, there must have been something which really hooked you. Eighteen years. Oh, really? Um, uh, I guess it intrigued me, this story, because there were so many gaps in it. You know, one of my mentors, the historian Bronwyn Daly, said to me, you know, absences can still be significant, and particularly in Whanganui, when so many things were left unanswered, and who knows who actually knew the actual answers to what happened. What happens is that then mythology sort of can sometimes fill those spaces. So let's meet the man behind the myth. Charles Mackey was born in Nelson in 1872. His dad was a school principal, first at Nelson College, then at Wellington College. And Charles Mackey himself was a star student. Quite a polymath, I think. You know, he was good at lots of things. Um, Very academic. You know, he was ducks. We know he played rugby. There's a photo of him in the first 15 at at, um, Wellington College. So remarkably clever and then went and did a degree at Canterbury University and then... Then he went teaching at King's College, so another one of those um, traditional schools in Auckland. But then he went farming to Midhurst um, in Taranaki, where his father had retired. Midhurst is a little place almost directly east of Mount Taranaki. In 1900, it was home to a big sawmill and dairy factory, but Charles Mackey didn't take to farming or forestry. Instead, he trained as a lawyer, working at a firm run by William Malone, the same Malone who would die at Gallipoli in 1915, leading the famous doomed assault on Chunuk Bear. But once he got his grounding in law, Mackey didn't stick around in Midhurst. People have said, you know, Mackey spotted that the town down the road was booming and that that was a good place to base yourself if you were a lawyer, and that's what he did. That place down the road was Whanganui. And honestly, the town is almost as much a character in the story as Mackey himself. Whanganui is one of the early New Zealand company settlements. When the company turned up in 1840, local Māori gave settlers permission to live near the river mouth, and it quickly became a hub for trade with hapū along the lower reaches of the river, especially Ngāti Tūpoho, Ngāti Tūmango, and Ngāpairangi. The town was originally called Peter before being renamed Wanganui in 1854. The name's since been corrected to Whanganui, and that's the pronunciation we're using in this podcast, although Pākehā at the time would have spelled it without the H. By the end of the 19th century, a combination of war, confiscation and the native land court had stripped all but a few fragments of the surrounding land from Māori and handed it to Pākehā colonists. And like Paul Diamond says, by the time Charles Mackey turned up in the early 20th century, Whanganui was booming. The invention of refrigerated shipping, mechanical shearing machines and synthetic fertilisers, plus high overseas demand, equaled a lot more business in the Whanganui port. (laughs) 
Steam-powered boats were chugging upriver with fertiliser and fencing wire and downriver with wool and livestock, all without the expense of railways or roads. Between 1909 and 1928, trade at the port would more than double and the population of Whanganui would more than triple. In 1924, Whanganui would graduate from a town to a city, the fifth largest city in the country. And the person who would lead Whanganui through many of these boom years was our man, Charles Mackey. Like Paul Diamond said, Mackey started out in Whanganui as a lawyer. He made a name for himself as a guy who would take any case, no matter how hopeless. He seems to have um, had an interest in unfortunate people, which I guess is what you do if you're a defence lawyer. You have to have empathy and be able to identify with people who've had a hard time. The other thing that you read about him is that he could just talk. He seemed quite indefatigable, really. He was obviously a very good speaker. There's lots of photos in newspapers of him addressing big crowds and things, but it did sound like in court cases he would just talk and talk and talk until the judge was sick of him. With that kind of background, he does seem a little bit born to get into politics, and he becomes mayor at a really young age. Um, I imagine for that time, even, that would be it would be unusual to become mayor at 31. And... If you look at the people who'd been in, in politics in Wanganui, um, they were sort of business people. They were they were a bit older than him. So I don't think I did wonder if he was the first New Zealand-born mayor. I don't think he was, but he certainly, as you say, was very young. And we're more used to that now. But until relatively recently, that would have been a bit unusual to be mayor of a town that was just on the rise. You know, it was going to meteoric rise Wanganui in that time at 31. Mm. Um, but perhaps he represented things that the town kind of identified with and liked to be seen, you know. Um, people talk about him, you know, dressing and behaving to the manner born, you know. You, you see photos of him wearing top hats and tails and, you know, he was... he. Uh, this is little old Wanganui. I mean, he looked quite impressive. That's one of the things a mayor has to do. They have to project a sense of the city that they represent to the rest of the country, to the rest of the world. The sense of importance they felt in in that town and, and having a presence in the country. With increasing trade and a rising population, the town desperately needed more and better infrastructure. One of the first major projects Mayor Charles Mackey tackled was building a network of electric trams for public transport. He was just about the only person who thought electric trams were a good idea. And Mr Hattrick, a former mayor, had gone to London and Paris and looked at these steam trams, which then were what people were using, and um, said, well, if it's good enough for London and Paris, it's good enough for Wanganui. But Charles Mackey said, no, um, we should have electric trams, which turned out to be really prescient because that was how everything was going in terms of the technology. Um, I don't know how Mackey knew that, but he pushed that through, and and apparently he was out on a limb. It was a risky bet, but it paid off big time. Even now if you drive to from Aramoho to Castlecliff, it's a heck of a long way. I'm always amazed how long it takes to get right through Castlecliff. So it would have been a revolutionary thing. And the electric trams were just the beginning. Mayor Mackey authorised port expansion, warehouse construction. He improved the town's roads, water supply, fire services. He was instrumental in getting the Dublin Street Bridge built. It was officially opened in 1914. Charles Mackey wasn't the mayor at that point. He lost the mayoral race in 1913, but would win again in 1915. And of course, by that point, New Zealand had entered the nightmare of the First World War. 
In four years, the war would kill 18,000 New Zealanders and leave tens of thousands more with lifelong scars, physical and psychological. And when news arrived in May 1915 that a German U-boat had torpedoed a civilian cruise liner called the Lusitania, killing nearly 2,000 men, women and children, something snapped. In towns and cities across New Zealand, crowds poured into the streets, targeting stores owned by people with German heritage, throwing rocks, smashing windows. And it does shock people, actually, that the worst anti-German riots were in Whanganui in 1915. They were in Hukutuka and other parts of the country. There was really strong anti-German feeling in that period. When he heard things were getting out of control, Charles Mackey rushed up to the outside balcony of the Majestic Theatre. It once stood at what's now Majestic Square. A crowd had gathered to jeer and throw stones at a butcher's shop across the road, owned by a German immigrant called Conrad Heinold. According to the Taihape Times, Mackey was greeted with cheers, at least at first. For fully five minutes, the mayor endeavoured to make himself heard, but his remarks were drowned in a tempest of hooting and yelling. A bursting cracker exploded in his face. There's all sorts of ways you could behave if you were the mayor in that situation, but he certainly was right amongst it. Whatever you think about him, you can't deny that he was brave. Blood dripping from his head, Mackey ran out of the theatre and chased the rioters as they swept down the street. The breaking glass flew like spray, and it was fortunate that some of the people in the vicinity did not receive serious injury. The disturbance was now at its height. Stones were still being thrown at Mr Heinold's premises, but there was no longer any glass to break, and the dull thud of the missiles could be heard rebounding inside the building. Occasionally, there came a combined shout of, Remember the Lusitania! And wild rumours were passed from lip to lip of other premises to be wrecked in turn. The mob momentarily paused when it arrived at a well-lit area in front of the post office. Mayor Mackey seized the opportunity and began to yell at the top of his lungs. Mr Mackey pointed to a bleeding wound on his face and earnestly appealed to the crowd not to further disgrace the town. Don't come down to the Germans' level, he shouted, above an increasing tumult. But nobody listened. Rocks flew, glass shattered. It was midnight by the time the mob dispersed, leaving several stores in ruins. Peace may have returned to the streets of Whanganui, but the town itself was still in turmoil. There was tremendous social pressure, especially as conscription went into effect, and its criteria were steadily widened to include more and more New Zealand men. Local women's groups organised to support the troops and to shame men who hadn't yet enlisted by handing out white feathers as a symbol of cowardice. By 1916, Charles Mackey was 40 years old, well above the age limit for conscription. But Paul Diamond says Mackey and many other men his age still felt pressure to serve. I guess what you've got to remember when you're writing history and reading history is that we know things that the people we're writing about and researching didn't know. We know the duration of the Great War. They didn't know how long it was going to go, and that they also didn't know how conscription was going to work out. Paul Baker wrote a terrific book about conscription in New Zealand, and that says that there was this period when particularly the older married men thought that the conscription would go as far as them, 
and then it would be a really bad look to be um, called up rather than enlisting. So, in March of 1916, Charles Mackey announced he would resign the mayoralty to enlist in the military. It was big news, lots of handshakes and backslaps. He even got an official message of congratulations from Prime Minister Bill Massey. But Charles Mackey never actually ended up following through on that promise. Instead, he cancelled his enlistment and continued on as mayor. Unfortunately, Paul Diamond couldn't find documentation showing how far along Mackey got with his enlistment and when he decided to pull out. What we do know is that some Whanganui voters were pretty unhappy with Mackey for going back on his word. As the Whanganui Chronicle reported in April 1917... Didn't you volunteer to go to the front? Asked an interjector when the mayor was delivering a pre-election address at Maria Place on Saturday night. When I put my application down, I was as anxious as anyone to go away, replied Mr Mackey. After I volunteered, circumstances in connection with my business and family reasons arose which rendered it impossible for me to get away. Charles Mackey did have business trouble. It would later emerge the finances for his legal firm were a mess. He did also have a wife and three kids to think of. He'd married Isabel Duncan in 1904... Isabel came from one of the big landowning families in Whanganui, and the marriage had been a major boost to his political career. He didn't mention this, but Mackie had also been diagnosed with a form of mental illness. We'll come back to that in a moment. Plus, if he sailed off to Europe, Mackie would miss the opportunity to finish his latest effort at putting Whanganui on the map. Designing and building the Sergeant Gallery. It was the keystone of a big new arts precinct he enthusiastically championed as mayor. The sergeant would open a year after the war ended, and Charles Mackey's name was inscribed in gold leaf on the foundation stone. It must have been a proud moment for the mayor. But by this point, he and the rest of Whanganui had been through the ringer. On top of all the misery of the war there was the devastation of the 1918 flu pandemic. As mayor, Mackie would have been in the thick of responding to the disease. He slogged through it, but the pressure kept building, politically, financially, and personally. Because Charles Mackie had a secret. He was having sex with other men. And in his day, that was considered a crime punishable with prison and hard labour. The history of LGBTQ plus people in 19th and early 20th century New Zealand is a tricky thing to talk about precisely because it was mostly kept secret. Chris Brickle is a history professor at Otago University who spent his career trying to build a picture of New Zealand's queer history, especially the history of gay and bisexual men. It is a um, it is a difficult thing to do, but that makes it more fun in a way. Playing detective and that sort of playing thing. detective, yeah, because you really are often having to find little wee pieces of evidence and put them together. It's a fun history to do, but it's a history that takes a long time to actually build up the bigger picture. Professor Brickle says one of the important things to wrap your head around when studying this history is that queer identity simply didn't exist in the same way back in the 19th and early 20th century as it does now. Even the term homosexual could have a huge variety of meanings based on who you talk to. 
And in New Zealand, some people thought homosexuality was sex between um, an adult man um, and, their, and an adolescent boy. And this is what defined homosexuality to them. So there, there have been different definitions um, of homosexuality or those alternative terms like inversion, which Alice popularised at the start of the 20th century. We talked about this old idea of gender inversion in a previous episode of Black Sheep about Eric Mario. It meant that men who had sex with men were perceived as sort of spiritually and mentally female and vice versa for women who had sex with other women. For example, the 19th century German psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebing described female sexual inversion as, quote, the masculine soul heaving in the female bosom. So the world that Mackey lived in was not quite the world of the kind of taxonomies around sexuality that we live in today. The other thing to keep in mind is that while queer people were persecuted in 19th and 20th century New Zealand, there could also be a surprising degree of openness and tolerance. For example, there were an awful lot of 19th century men who had sex with other men while working out in the bush or on goldfields. The attitude seemed to be that in these isolated all-male environments, it was okay for men to have sex with each other casually, and sometimes more serious relationships might develop. But over time, attitudes hardened. One of the things that many historians agree on is that the emergence of the middle class in New Zealand and elsewhere in the late 19th century, particularly the urban middle class, gave rise to two contradictory things. It gave rise to a new kind of morality and a new moralism, which James Balich, the historian, calls the Great Tightening. But at the same time, there were also lots of opportunities that were made available through urbanisation in New Zealand. So I've recently discovered that in Auckland, there was a, a culture of sorts of men picking each other up on the wharves that I can date back to um, 1907. It probably goes even earlier, but you can see that urbanisation gave way to new opportunities, even as it also gave way to new forms of morality. And this is perhaps the world or the ideological world that Mackey ended up tangled up in in uh, 1920. The same year the war broke out, in 1914, Charles Mackey went to a kind of new-agey doctor. In some newspapers, he's described as a metaphysician and a hypnotist. He said Mackey was suffering from, quote, homosexual monomania, which was a fancy way of saying Mackey had a mental illness which caused his attraction to other men. The doctor said this mania was caused by neurasthenia, a kind of disease of the nerves. Back in those days, doctors often used that term for what might be diagnosed these days as anxiety, depression, PTSD. Chris Brickle says this view of homosexuality as a mental illness was actually pretty unusual in early 20th century New Zealand. Most people in those days saw sex between men as a moral or spiritual failing rather than anything medical. But it seems this more scientific or pseudo-scientific view is the one Mackey used to understand his attraction to other men. Paul Diamond. So he recognised it as a medical issue as they saw it then and he tried to um, fix it using a treatment that we would kind of term, you know, a, a conversion therapy treatment really in our, in our language. By 1920, you've got to see Mackey as a man under intense pressure. 
externally and internally. He's struggling with his attraction to other men and presumably living in fear of exposure. He's had all the controversy around his unfulfilled promise to serve in the war. His legal business is a financial mess. And as mayor, he's overseeing massive building projects, fighting political battles and all the little dramas that cropped up day to day. But all the public saw was that same old ambitious, fast-talking, energetic mayor that always had. And in 1920, Charles Mackey had especially big ambitions for Whanganui. Because that year, the town was going to host none other than His Royal Highness Edward Albert Christian George Andrew Patrick David Windsor, Prince of Wales and heir to the throne of the British Empire. Prince Edward was a famous guy. He had insisted on joining the army during the war and repeatedly visited the front despite objections from the king and senior government ministers who were terrified he was going to be killed or captured. Edward's bravery won him a lot of good PR. In New Zealand and Australia, he was affectionately nicknamed the Digger Prince. And the fact the Digger Prince would be spending a night in Whanganui as part of a worldwide royal tour was a real coup for the town. And the visit, as I understand it, was very much bound up with the Great War. And it was thanking the Dominions for their contribution and sacrifice. And, and it shows sort of Wanganui's kind of status in the country is that they got the chance to have a reception. And that apparently was going to be the only one in New Zealand. But this strange row developed. Charles Mackey was right at the centre of this row. Mackey wanted to hold a concert for Prince Edward at the Majesty Theatre, followed by a reception at the newly completed Sargent Gallery. And aside from politicians and other important townsfolk, he wanted the guests to be mostly made up of Whanganui's young people. And that seems a strange kind of decision when, you know, the soldiers were so prominent in Whanganui then and this whole visit was about the soldiers. The Whanganui RSA basically decided that if they weren't invited to the official celebration, they'd organise their own concert. The prince, luckily enough, said he was OK attending two concerts. But Mackey's argument with the RSA was just the beginning. Strange sort of rows would, would grow up like the reception for the young people was going to have claret cup and the temperance at that stage was quite strong in New Zealand and they were unhappy about that happening. Then they said they were going to have soloists and musicians from out of town for it and that got people up in arms because they said, well, I, are the people in Monganui not good enough? You know, we have musicians, we have singers. And then Mackie wrote to all of the other centres and requested invitations for him and his wife to attend the events for the visit of the prince, and, and one of the councillors sort of objected to that. Hmm. What emerges for me is a picture of a person who's just so... He, he must have had a lot of energy, but I don't know how he kept on top of all of this. Then, finally, the big day arrived. April 30th, 1920. After the official welcome, the prince headed off to the soldiers' concert. An Australian reporter covering the royal tour described it like this. The concert given by the returned soldiers at the Opera House drew a crowded house, but it was not an artistic success. A scene was set representing an oasis in the desert. Several performers, dressed as Arabs, sang old ballads, such as Bedouin love songs, introduced personalities and made jokes about beer. Also, there was some poor dancing. 
After that poor dancing, the prince was off to the mayor's glitzy concert at the Majesty Theatre. An ambitious program was presented to a crowded and fashionably dressed audience. The prince occupied a seat in the front row of the dress circle. The orchestra was partway through a symphony by Tchaikovsky, and then... All the lights went out. Because there was big pressure on the um, power supply in Monganui from the expansion of the tram network and also people wanting their businesses connected to this fantastic new electricity and the system just couldn't cope, which is a great kind of physical metaphor for, I think, the social pressures that were sort of building there because you've got Mackie and amongst everything else he's doing, you know, he was running his business, he was a father. There's also this tour that's rapidly spinning out of control. After a few minutes of confused darkness, the lights came back on and the royal party made its way to the sergeant gallery for supper. The prince didn't stick around though. As soon as he finished eating, he ditched the mayor's reception to go drink with the returned soldiers. And as soon as he left, a surrounding crowd of about 1,600 hungry people who'd been waiting outside rushed into the marquee, scoffed down all the leftovers and someone looted the silverware. As that Aussie reporter noted, There is a lesson to be learnt from Fonganui's evening programme of welcome. One concert is more than sufficient, two concerts on the same night are a blunder, and a public rush for tea and buns and a marquee afterwards is a crime. The prince himself was less than impressed with Fonganui. He wrote this in a private letter to his mistress. It's really a miserable hole. No electric light and hotel boilers elected to burst before dinner, so no baths and a very nasty dinner. But we're all rather peeved tonight, as we have had a desperately twying day. I'm frozen, as there's no heating in my room, and I'm sitting huddled up in an overcoat. Just by the way, we're not really meaning to make fun of the prince here. We kind of are, but he did actually spell some of his words with W's rather than R's, so I can only assume he meant them to be read like that. Anyway, as you can imagine, much of the blame for this disaster of a royal visit fell on Charles Mackey. He was the mayor. The buck stopped with him. And there's a sense of shame being brought on the town. and It must have been pretty uncomfortable for them to you know, have had this coup of having these receptions and then it just turned into such a mess. Mm. You know, it was reported in all these big Australian papers. Papers all across Australia have it as well, not just the New Zealand papers. Yeah, there is a sense of this town that at that stage had a sense of its own importance and that was being sort of punctured by this disastrous visit. And you've got to imagine that Mackie took a lot of the the public blame for that, that people thought he was the guy. I mean, to be honest... Reading it, I think the RSA has a point that, like, the prince is coming, he's there to honour the troops. Why does the reception have such a small role for for returned servicemen in it? You can understand their, their, their anger and disappointment about that. There seemed to be a bit of bad blood between Mackie and the RSA head, um, president and secretary, because there is a reference from Woods. That's Wilson Gordon Woods, president of the Whanganui RSA. Saying you know, that if it was slighted by Mackie and that might have been because he was a working man. Mm. You know, there's sort of a, I think there's a real class dynamic in this story. Or whether they're just trying to bait Mackie, there's also that is mentioned by some of the people who wrote letters to the editor that this is all just to wind him up and that they just know if they push him and push him and push him, then he'll blow. 
On May 10th, less than a fortnight after the royal visit, Charles Mackey met a handsome 24-year-old returned soldier by the name of Walter Darcy Cresswell. Five days after that first meeting, on May 15th, 1920, Charles Mackey would shoot that handsome 24-year-old through the chest. What happened in those five days is extremely mysterious. We only get one side of the story, the one laid out by the victim. Because, yes, despite what Cresswell thought were his dying words as he lay on the footpath outside Mackey's office, he survived. Cresswell got lucky. Mackey shot him through the right side of the chest, not the left, so the bullet went through his lung and lodged in his back without hitting his heart. He rapidly improved, and within days he was well enough to give a three-page statement to the police explaining what happened. Basically, Cresswell says he discovered Mackey was having sex with other men and threatened to expose him unless he resigned as mayor. Mackey became increasingly desperate, pleading with Cresswell, threatening to commit suicide, and then, finally, trying to kill his 24-year-old blackmailer. But the thing is, Darcy Cresswell's three-page statement leaves an awful lot of unanswered questions. How did he discover the scandalous fact about the mayor? Did he find it out himself, or was he told by someone else? Why did he take it on himself to blackmail Mackie into resigning? Why not go to the police or the newspapers? Plus, there's an extra thing you should know. Darcy Cresswell was himself homosexual. He would more or less come out publicly a few years later. He did know what he was doing, using the shame of a sexuality which Cresswell himself shared. So, what the hell happened here? There are all kinds of theories. Maybe it played out the way Cresswell said. He was shocked to discover the mayor was attracted to men and thought a man like that had no business being mayor. But many people think there's more to it. Maybe Cresswell was the front man for a conspiracy by a political rival to oust Mackey as mayor. Politicians who were in power for a long time, you know, all tend to make enemies at some point, sooner or later. Maybe the blackmail was revenge by the RSA for Mackey's bungling of the royal visit. There was quite a schism in New Zealand society through First and Second World Wars that divided those men who went to war and those men who didn't. Or maybe Darcy Cresswell took down the mayor for something more sinister than simply having sex with other consenting adult men. It was this weird statement in the New Zealand Times where they said it is understood that certain other discoveries have been made by Darcy Cresswell and certain people have shaken the dust of Whanganui off their feet. In the next episode of Black Sheep, we'll dig into this mystery and we'll look at how Charles Mackey's story ends with imprisonment, exile and, finally, another shooting. There was a pretty systematic attempt to erase him.
Very special thanks this episode to Paul Diamond. His book is Downfall, The Destruction of Charles Mackey, published by Massey University Press. Big thanks also to Professor Chris Brickle. He's written a bunch of excellent history books, including Mates and Lovers, A History of Gay New Zealand. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever other podcasting app you use. And while you're at it, you might want to check out RNZ's other excellent podcasts. Personally, I start every day with an episode of The Detail, RNZ's daily news podcast, so why not give that one a go? Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The sound engineer is William Saunders, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our voice actors are James Kane, Andrew Robertson, Duncan Smith, Simon Dickinson, Max Toll, Melanie Phipps, John Gerritsen, Phil Pennington, and Giles Beckford. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.